It's time now for the complete story, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now here's the BRN father and son team, Dick and Rich Bot, with today's complete story. Well, I tell you what, folks, it's a father and son team, but the son is at another conference on the East Coast this week, so here I am, an old guy, and I'll have to fly solo. <laughs> Again, and I'll just talk to you. We'll just have a heart-to-heart discussion here. Man alive, uh, you watch the news, you watch everything. Every politician, you know, they have a campaign manager. And uh, the sad thing is that it's hard to know who is who because everybody's digging up the worst possible thing they can say about the other guy. I guess that's how you win elections. But we, the people, the voters, especially our audience, They have to decipher and figure out what is what and who is who and who really means it. And how have they lived? What has been their record? And especially, you know, in my case, and I'm sure in the case of many of you folks, the life question is really fundamental. The life question that always comes first, doesn't it? Before liberty and then the pursuit of happiness. The life question. Each human being in America should be valued equally. A little tiny newborn baby should be no more valuable and deserve protection than one who is three months shy of being born. They're all human beings, or the three-year-old is just as valuable as the 16-year-old, even though the 16-year-old can get a job and work and help out, but that has nothing to do with the value of the human being because we're civilized. And certainly science supports everything I'm saying, and it's in the Bible. But anyway, here's Paul Harvey now, and you'll hear by his voice, he's gotten a little older. and uh, But nevertheless, the wheel turns, and even then, there was bad news in America. Listen to this. Bad news pays. I'm on a foundation board, the MacArthur Foundation, which dispenses large sums for research. And I can tell you that a lot of scholars and a lot of institutions secure money for research by producing bad news about population, about resources, about environment. For another thing, there's a demonstrable fascination with. There's a proof public preference for bad news because what's bad news to somebody is good news to many. The listener or the reader to bad news can say to himself, well, at least I'm not as bad or as bad off as those fellows. And then the printer whose printing machine broke down or the builder who bid too low or the salesman who lost a sale or the farmer who lost a crop or the wildcatter who drilled a duster, he can see his problem is not so bad after all. After all, bad news is good news. The reader does not want to read about some rich man who's healthy and happily married. That might tend to make the reader feel sorry for himself. But if the rich man is divorced or diseased or loses his money, that's more interesting reading because then the reader can feel himself to be better off. There's always somebody in any hospital ward just enough worse off to help us feel comparatively fortunate. And noisy news serves that purpose. And thus the plane crash, which does not involve you, the billionaire in bankruptcy, 
the charity boss caught stealing, the movie actor charged with murder. These will continue to be on page one for as long as the fire which burns them warms the rest of us. By our own emphasis on all of the bad things, crime and inflation and pollution and floods and fires and discords and disaster and discontent, by our persistent preoccupation with negatives, we tend to unsell ourselves and our impressionable offspring on a way of life which is the envy of the rest of the world. And repetition is effective. Repetition is effective. Repetition is effective. <laughs> Bob Barker asked a game show contestant for $500, named two famous brothers who made it possible for men to fly. Without a moment's hesitation, the contestant replied, Ernest and Julio. <clears throat> Self-government requires self-discipline all the way to the top and all the way down to us. Then, then we may lead the world as we once did. For our nation's first 150 years, we led the world, not with guns, not with butter, not with money, but by example. The French threw off the yoke of their dissolute aristocracy. England initiated sweeping democratic reforms. Mexico, Central America, South America freed themselves from Spain, just watching our example. On this rebellious planet, storms are a part of the normal year-in and year-out climate of life. We earn the sweet by and by by how we deal with the messy here and now. Sometimes the storm takes the shape of an economic holocaust or a prolonged drought, sometimes internal civil strife, sometimes a military confrontation. You know, Churchill said that the war years were England's finest hour, and we face a new testing time every lifetime. Some of us have been professional observers of several lifetimes. We remember epidemic TB in the crash of 29 and the Dust Bowl and Hitler's Holocaust and Pearl Harbor. We resent challenges, but we're no longer panicked by them. A few years ago, our anxiety focused on the hideous force of the unharnessed atom. But now, in retrospect, we can see that the A-bomb was a disguised blessing. We Americans are outnumbered by potential enemies seven to one. War with bayonets, we couldn't win. The big bomb wasn't remains the equalizer that cuts the limitless hordes down to our size. Now we can see that an all-wise, almighty entrusted this hideous instrument to our tiny fraction of the planet's population first, not for our destruction, but for our deliverance. Times don't change. Time goes in circles. The atom bomb altered the potential strategy of war but we are never without war for very long. In the three and a half thousand years of recorded history, fewer than 8% of those years have been warless ones. It's been barely, my goodness, it's been barely 138 years since we were at war with ourselves. So storms are part of the planet's normal climate, and eternity is being prepared somewhere, a perfect place, and we have to demonstrate here whether we deserve to be there. And if there were perpetual sunshine, there'd be no victory. 
So it's testing time again. And from everything I have seen, man alive, we're passing this test again and with our colors flying. Members of Congress huff and puff and hold hearings and strike poses. The media makes an opportunity to rake some muck and somebody's go to jail and in between the teapot dome and Enron. We have endured two big wars and assorted lesser ones. During each, a frightened segment of Americans were convinced that our country was going to hell. It did, never did. Many times it went through a little hell, but it always came out on the other side of the crucible, heat-tempered and better than stronger and more prosperous than before. I discover in my travels that America is falling in love again with America. If the future appears darker than it is, it's because of the slimy bugs on the windshield of the world, the social misfits. If I can leave you with only one thing, may it be this. Don't let the headline writers rain on your parade. My goodness, if you could pick a place in the whole world to live, it would have to be this place and it would have to be this time. You are where everybody else in the world so wants to be. My goodness, there's resiliency in this country that we have not yet begun to use. As Mark Twain is said to have said of the music of Richard Wagner, it's not nearly so bad as it sounds. <laughs> Good day. <laughs> oh, well, I certainly enjoyed that. But yeah, the music isn't quite as bad as it sounds. <laughs> However, now, in my own opinion, it's not a circle that we keep going around and around through history. It's a spiral. And as we go around and around, we don't come back to the same place ever. It's a spiral downward that I feel is happening right now. Now, you know, the Supreme Court and its decision on Roe v. Wade about life, of course, if they reverse themselves, which I think they should do, then it'll go back to the states. And then the states can deal with it, which puts it much closer to the people. Do you get it, folks? When the people have a chance to speak to the issue, then you have a better chance of coming to what is right based on how the majority of the people feel and that sort of thing. Anyway, here is a statement by the United States Supreme Court on 1885. The case was Murphy versus Ramsey and others. And I quote, Certainly no legislation can be supposed more wholesome and necessary in the founding of a free, self-governing commonwealth than that which seeks to establish it on the basis uh, of the idea of the family as consisting in and springing from the union for life of one man and one woman in the holy state of matrimony. The family is the sure foundation of all that is stable and noble in our civilization. That's a direct quote from the Supreme Court. And now, of course, the family. We're talking about the children. 
We're talking about rights for everybody other than the little one. The smaller they are, the less rights anyone gives them is concerning until finally it reaches all the way down till they are uh, certainly human. Science has proved it, and there's no doubt about that. The human being is very tiny after conception. And so the state then uh, will get the contest um, if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And on that score, I want to say it's not unprecedented. Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 was a reversal when the Supreme Court had to say, we got it wrong. We just got it wrong. And they reversed themselves. And then the one that is very close to me, I've studied it so carefully, is Dred Scott decision. By the way, his great-great-granddaughter lives in St. Louis, Lynn Jackson, a fine Christian, a wonderful Christian. And uh, But Dred Scott, my goodness, uh, the Supreme Court ruled it the first time around that he was only three-fifths human. Therefore, he wasn't qualified to even be in court, let alone, you know, have something reversed. And they they had to finally get it right and turn themselves around. So well, that's what we're in right now. These are very, very perilous times. They really are. But you know, folks, when it comes right down to it, are we only thinking of ourselves, or are we thinking of someone else, how we can help them, how we can be there, how we can pray for them, how we can supply their needs as much as we have um, the potential to do so? Here's Carol Robertson to sing about it. If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, my friend, you've lost everything. If you live in a mansion with servants like a king, without Jesus, it's all in vain If you gain the whole world And lose your soul You miss the real reason for life True riches are found in knowing to be righteous in his eyes This world with all its riches will soon pass away If our treasures are in heaven they will never decay If you gain the whole world and lose your soul my friend you've lost everything if you gain the whole world and lose 
My friend, you've lost everything. If you live in a mansion with servants like a king, without Jesus, it's all in vain. Yeah, that's the truth. That's absolutely the truth. Uh, you know, the Bible says if you love the Lord um, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit, uh, and the second is like unto it, then love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and here's Glenn Payne to sing about that. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word or a song If I can show somebody That is trial and wrong Then my living shall not be in Then my living 
uh, shall not be in vain. Uh, now here is Star Parker, uh, my good friend. Uh, she's a black lady, uh, and we met each other years and years ago. I don't know, long, long time ago, maybe ten, fifteen years ago. And Star is now on the executive committee of National Religious Broadcasters, uh, and adding so much. But when Star was kind of, kind of uh, trying to find herself, just completely didn't know the Lord at all, and uh, all of that, and then somebody witnessed to her, somebody showed her the way, and here is Star to tell you about it. I was out of control. I just was doing whatever came. And my kid at that point was a few years old, and I mean, I was barely taking care of her. Star Parker's reckless search for happiness would bring her to a breaking point and would dramatically change her. Star Parker entered her teen years in an America reeling from the racial turmoil and sexual upheaval of the late 60s. Her love for excitement and risk easily led to a lifestyle of reckless decisions. I love life and I like freedom. I would go to school all day and then sneak out at night and we would go break and enter people's homes and we would go get in a lot of fights. Finally, it escalated to one of my really close associates at that time uh, wanted to rob a store. He's like, run, run, and the store owner, you know, started yelling and screaming. That's when I first thought, wow, there's something wrong with what we're doing, and we could actually end up dead. And so that's when I started running, and it was my first experience with feeling that I am really going down a path of no return. I'd hang out at Venice Beach, I'd hang out in clubs and take a lot of drugs, and I kept getting pregnant, and then I would just have abortion, and then I'd get pregnant again. It was just like, this is, you know, crazy living. I didn't like the decisions I was making, but I didn't have any control over them, I felt. I just was doing whatever came. After four abortions, Starr decided to keep her next child. As a pregnant mom on welfare, she began to look for extra income. I went into an advertising agency looking for money under the table. This particular agency was being run by three men, uh, good-looking men, I might add, and I thought, oh, I could work here. This would be great <laughs> because I was a party girl. Um, and that's when they confronted me. They said they didn't pay under the table. They were legitimate businessmen. <laughs> I'll never forget. I was very confronted to them. They were confronted back to me, and they finally told me my lifestyle was unacceptable. I couldn't work there, and I was really upset at this point. And so I asked them, unacceptable to who? And they said it was unacceptable to God. And I just stopped. I, did, I didn't know what to say. Up until that point, I never really thought about God, and I never really thought about God thinking about me. When Starr ended up alone in the hospital with an emergency C-section, she received an unexpected visitor. Ken, who I'd met at the advertising agency, who had called me a couple of times during my pregnancy to let me know that you know they were thinking about me, he came to the hospital. And I don't even know how he knew that I was at the hospital. And he's telling me that, you know, God loved me and and I told him that, um, you know, I, I don't know why I couldn't love myself. And he left, and I left. I went home, and I didn't change anything. I just kept partying and kept, kept on welfare, and he kept calling. 
And then finally, I just went to church with him. Because I thought maybe what he was saying was true. Maybe God did love me. It seemed peaceful. It seemed um, controlled. I was out of control. And I never thought I wanted control. But when I saw that, I wanted it. I knew I'd sin, but I think when it became crystal clear that I needed Christ, I had to be forgiven of something really deep was when abortion was mentioned, because now we're talking the taking of a life. And that's when I realized that I really did need to be saved, because not just saved from, you know, hell. I needed to be saved from myself. Star surrendered her life to Jesus Christ and the difference in her quickly became evident. Every time we would go to the Bible study or go to the church, he would bring forth a message from the scripture. There was something in there that would convict me somewhere else that maybe I thought, or didn't think about at all. Before I was out of control sexually, because I had no reason to say no. Now I have reason to say no, because the scripture says say no. I was still living on welfare, and that was just how I lived. And one day the preacher said, what are you doing living on welfare? I thought, what? How does he know I live on welfare? <laughs> he said, the government is not your source. Turn in your Bible. And he had us turn. Sure enough, it said, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So I wrote my caseworker and told her to take my name off. God delivered me. He just really, really has recovered my life that I'm confident in that if he would do it for me, he could do it for somebody else. You know, it's not just something that somebody told me and I'm kind of making it up as I go along. I can be confident in something that is eternal. His hand is a loving hand and I just owe my life to him. Mm -hmm. You know, folks, Star Parker, not only is my good friend but she is serving the Lord and a witness and, um, and uh, just all over the place. Um, I hope that meant something to you because your story may be different, but the answer is the same. Now, the listener comment line, if you want to comment, we'd love to hear from you. 800-345-2621. 800-345-2621. This is old Dick Bot, and I hope my son will be back with me next week. And anyway, this is the chapter of the complete story, and uh, as a public service, by the way, and I'll see you later. 